we're going to open a prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. Lord, help show us what you'd want us to see as we look at the finishing of the building of the temple and, and guide us and show us what you want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. My plan is to go semi-quick through this section because he spends a long time talking about these wash basins that he puts on rolling carts. And starts at verse 27 and doesn't end until verse 39. So I'm going to read the whole section and then we'll kind of pull it apart a little bit. Uh, because I don't want to spend a long time on the wash, the wash basins because, well, they kind of were, they were, they were, what they were used for was they would take them to the end of the table where they would, they would uh, cut open the sacrifice and then they were able to wash their hands as soon as they were done washing the sacrifice and they would get rid of the water, put new water in, take it, take it to the next table. That was part of their process, but he doesn't go into the process. He says what he made and where he put them. So I'm going to read a large section here, and then we'll talk a little bit about it. Starting at verse uh, 27 in 1 Kings 7. And he made ten bases of brass. Four cubits was the length of one base, and four cubits the breadth thereof, and three cubits in height of it. And the work of the bases was at, on this manner. They had borders, and the borders between the ledges, and the borders that were on the le- between the ledges were were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the ledges, uh, there, there was a base above, and, and beneath the lions and the oxen were certain additions made of thin work. And the, every base had four brass wheels and plates of brass, and four corners thereof had undersetters, whereupon the lavers were undersetters molden, and at the side of every addition. And the mouth of it within the capiter, or the crown, we talked about that last time, and above it was a cubit, and the mouth thereof was round about the work of the base, and a cubit and a half, and it was the mouth of the gravens, of the carvings and their borders, four square, not round. And under the borders were four wheels with axles, axle tires of, of the wheels, and joined to the base, and the height of the wheel was a cubit and a half. And the work of the wheels was likened to the chariot wheel, and the axle trees, their naves, and their fellows and their spokes were all molded and there were four undersetters to the four corners of the one base and the undersetters were of the very base itself and in the top of the base there was a round compass a half a cubit high and on the top of the base of the ledges thereof the borders thereof were of the same and on the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof he he carved cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the proportion of every one and the additions round about. After this manner, he made the ten bases. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one size. So we'll stop there for just a moment. He says these are molded. Right? These are molded, one piece. All of them were made out of the same cast, so they were exactly the same. So they're four cubits wide, four cubits deep, which is about six feet. So these aren't small, small tables, small baths. These are pretty good size. They're a six foot square pedestal. And on top of that, he puts on another cubit and a half, which is about 27 inches ledge around that, which the bowl is going to sit in. And they're up by four cubits, which means, uh, excuse me, uh, they were up uh, four and a half feet tall. So these are not short stands. They're standing up at four and a half feet, and then he adds the bowl on top of that. 
So these are, these are not your average sink sitting at about 36 inches high. These things are starting higher and they're designed basically just to wash up as in, between, in between sacrifices is what they're going to be done. And these make some interesting, interesting wheels on them. Uh, he says on the ledge they put, they carved lions, oxen, and cherubim. Why these three things? I don't know. The cherubim make some sense. They're angels. Why lions and oxen? I, at first I was looking to see where there are other, other carvings around the whole thing because each tribe of Israel has an animal associated with their, with their ensign. But when I saw just the two, I'm going, that doesn't make sense. It could be Judah, and I think it's Simeon for the lion. I didn't, I didn't look uh, for, the, for the ox. It could be, uh, but I'm not sure. And, but he's, he's carved these on there, and then he makes sides of these things, and he carves those with palm trees, oxen, and cherubim. What do the palm trees stand for? The palm trees, uh, uh, fruitfulness and growth. Kind of makes sense, but it's not in victory, king, king. So it, it shows some things there. Um, and then an undersetter is, is a, um, the base of it. So it's just the base that he's building on this thing. It's uh, the support system that he has on it. And so he's building these, these support systems. He's laying sheets of, of brass around those and carving, carving in them intricate designs. Then he makes wheels on the bottom of these a cubit and a half. That's about a 27-inch wheel. A pretty, pretty significant wheel. You know, and he's got, so he's got four of those you know, on this. And they're, remember, they're only six foot, six foot. So there's not, those are pretty good-sized wheels for what he's doing. But he wants to make sure they're easily moved. They're going to be in the temple. You don't want any of them toppling over six foot. Six foot is very nice, stable activity. Because the last thing you want to do is dump over your, your wash bowl in the, in the sanctuary. Uh, so they're, they're making them easily movable. And he's building these things. And he says that they have four wheels, an axle tree or the, 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 the rod between them, and the tires on them. And he says that they were built like the chariot wheels with spokes, all right? And they're not solid, so they have the spokes of the chariot wheels. And I think at that time they were using a six-pronged six spoke in that, in that day and age. Um, different spokes represented different, just like our cars. Our cars always have different designs and everything. And if you're really into cars, you know the, you know the car by the design. Design, even if it's the same model, oh, that, that belongs to that year, that belongs to this year, that belongs to this year. I never knew them that well. <laughs> All right. Uh, Samuel drive down the road and tell me exactly what year the car is, and he's probably right. <laughs> uh, you know, so they, they build these with spokes, and when they get all done with this, they set in a round basin into it. All right. And so we've got our big base that's coming up almost five feet tall by the time it's done, and then a basin of water sitting on that, which we haven't got to the basins yet. So these are going to sit at the end of each of the tables in the sanctuary. Now, in the temple, we haven't talked a lot about the temple. We talked about the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat sits. In front of that is the holy place where the 
uh, table of showbread is where they put the new showbread on every couple days and they have the uh, altar of incense where they keep oil, oil being burned for representing the prayers and then they have the um, menorah in there for the light. Outside of that, they would have the place where the, where the altar was for the burnt sacrifices and all around that was tables where they would bring the animals so the animals would be killed in the temple. You can imagine this. You're taking a live animal in the temple and you're leaving with a dead, dead carcass. Uh, and, you know, because remember when we talked a little bit about this, you know, we kind of think of all the sacrifices being the same thing. You just burnt the whole, the whole sacrifice. Most of the sacrifices did not burn the entire animal. They, most of them, you burned portions of the animal. The priest got part of the, part of the sacrifice and then you went home with the rest of it and you had something you had to do with that. You had to eat every part that you took within 24 to 36 hours, depending on what sacrifice you had made. So there was one, and, and I loved it, one of the, one of the uh, pastors I listened to it, he called it the, the, uh, party, the party sacrifice because you, 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 you left half of it with the priest and you went home and you had a big party because you had to eat it. You had to eat the rest of the, the, ox, you know, the bull or ox in 24 hours. So you went home and you just called all your friends and everybody. And it was one of the, and it was one of the celebratory sacrifices. It was a free will offering. You gave half of it to God and you got back half of it. But the, pre, the prerequisite was that you had to, on the Thanksgiving offering, you had to eat it within 24 hours, which meant you called all your friends. You, especially if you had a big, you know, if, you, if you put a bullock on the offering, you know, six, 700 pounds of meat and you came home with 300 pounds of meat, uh, you had a party. <laughs> you know, you're celebrating because that had to be eaten within 24 hours. I mean, if it was a sheep, it's still, I don't know, I love a leg of lamb, and a leg of lamb can feed, my, you know, feed our family even when we have a group of us together. I can't imagine taking the entire lamb and having you know, 20 or 30 pounds of lamb to eat in, one, in 24 hours of period. So these were the things that came down to. We, we think of it in, in, as Gentiles, well, there was just one sacrifice. You took it and just burned the whole thing. No, we talked about it. Seven different offerings that could be made. You went into the temple with a live animal, you came out with whatever portion of it was yours. And you had rules that it had to be eaten up in, so, in so, a certain period of time. So here, it really is a time of worship where blood is flowing when you go to church. Uh, there's, a there's a story about uh, the temple in Jerusalem in Jesus' day on one particular Passover, they had something like three million people in Jerusalem and you had to have one lamb per 12 people. They said that the, 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 the uh, brook Jabbar that flows near it was red. There was so much blood that was flowing from that, that day of sacrifice. You know, and we don't really understand what it means to be in a situation where our salvation and the covering of our sins depended on this, the, the shedding of blood in symbol of Jesus' shedding of the blood, but you know, he died so that we don't have to do that anymore. And blood has been shed from the very beginning of sin. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did, you, what did God do to, to cover them? He killed animals to provide skins for them. Okay? God performed the first sacrifice. 
And I don't believe that it was long, long into, after creation. So I really believe that God wiped out a particular species of animal to create skins for them because there wasn't other animals to do this. And what's worse is they were the caretakers of these animals. They had named them. They had cared for them. It was a pet that covered them, and they had deep love for it. In the Passover lamb, they took this lamb that they were picking for the lamb, and they put the lamb in their house for four days before they killed it. Literally brought, made it a pet. And you know those kids enjoyed having that lamb in there and making it a pet, probably named it, and then they were eating it four days later. Why? Because Jesus was examined for four days and then died for our sins knowing what he had done. Knowing what he had done. We see this whole process in this. God wants us to know how valuable this is. This is why I try very hard to make us understand our salvation comes at a price. Jesus died a horrible death for us. Now, the sacrifices weren't too bad. They cut their throat, so they didn't go through a lot of pain, you know, but they still died. They still died, and they were skinned, and then they were cut up. The, the Levites ended up being very good butchers. They learned how to cut the meat very quickly, very efficiently, and it was used by people as their food when they would celebrate God. And so we see these tables are part of that, that process so that they could wash their hands and be clean between sacrifices. Uh, so we're building these, these uh, great big tables. And so we're going to look here on verse 30, 38. Then he made the ten lavers of brass. One laver contained 40 baths, and every laver was four cubits, and upon every one was of the ten bases of, of one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. And he set the seas in the, of the right side in the, of the house eastward over against the south. So he's building these lavers or tubs. <laughs> and they're four feet, they're four cubits. So they're six, six cubits. So they fit onto the top of this. And it says that they each hold 40 baths of liquid, which is approximately 310 gallons of, of water. These are not insignificant <laughs> wash basins. Uh, they're almost full, full-fledged full bathtubs, <laughs> okay? Because um, I was sitting there trying to figure out 310 gallons. Now, when I was growing up, we had a 10-gallon fish tank, which was a pretty good-sized tank, so we're talking 30 of my, of my little 10-gallon tanks that I grew up with in each one of these. That's a lot of water. That's a lot of water for them to be having to have at the end of every one of these tables where the sacrifices are being made. And we're going to see, you know, at various times, we're going to see the people coming and giving offerings. We really need to be thankful that we live in a place where Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial system for us. Uh, I can't imagine what it would be like to go into the temple with all that blood, all that chaos, and the smell of the blood. Okay? 
no matter how well they tried to clean it up, no matter how much water they put on this thing, the, the smell of the blood would be overwhelming, especially toward the end of the day. Because they're in the desert. It's going to smell. And it's going to smell bad. And they make this sacrifice every single day. And morning and evening. And all day long they're making these sacrifices. They wouldn't have a whole lot of time to be cleaning up. So this is a very interesting thing. People say that, you know, you Christians, you have a bloody religion. And, you know, we, we do. We have the blood of Jesus Christ. And everybody's trying to downplay that in our, in our day and age. You know, but without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus' blood is why we are saved. And that's why, and I don't know if anybody's noticed it, but every single week there's at least one song about the blood or the cross. Because that is the center of the gospel message. Without the shedding of blood, Jesus' blood, we would not be able to enter heaven. God is perfect. He is perfect and holy and righteous. He demands payment for sin. Jesus had to shed his blood for the payment for our sin or we could not be forgiven because God could not ignore the payment for sin. So he shed his blood so that we could be saved and then he could say, okay, I can forgive you because it's paid for. Not because I just choose to forgive you because that's outside of his character. He can't be ignoring sin. And we've said this over and over. There's always a consequence for sin. The ultimate consequence is death. Jesus took that death upon himself, but we know there's consequence. And if we reject Jesus, the consequence is hell. Beyond the consequences in this lifetime. So these sacrifices made in the temple were a substitution and a pointer to Jesus coming. Everybody, even in the Old Testament, was saved because of the shedding of Jesus' blood. Not because of the animals that they shed. Adam and Eve were not forgiven for sin because of the animal that was shed on the blood in Eden before they were kicked out. It because, but it was because it was a picture of the Messiah that would come 4,000 years later. And they didn't know fully understand that, but that's what it was all about. And everybody has always been saved that way. Why? Because God knew that when Jesus said, yes, I will die before the creation of the world, he knew that this Jesus would die. He knew that he wouldn't back out because he was God. He could not lie. So therefore, he would not back out. He would accomplish what he said he was going to do. So the Father, right from the very beginning, saved everybody by the shedding of Jesus' blood that was 4,000 years later because he already knew that it was going to happen. And that's hard for us to understand. And I've heard people all over the time, all over my years, well, they, they couldn't have been saved because Jesus hadn't have died. Baloney. You know, yeah. God the Father knew that when Jesus said before the foundation of the world that he would die, it was done. It was completed. Even though it hadn't happened in time, in our time, he knew that it would be done and would be accomplished. So therefore, he could forgive people because of the blood of Jesus even before he, Jesus died from our time frame. 
Jesus, we are dealt with in this world as if we are perfect because God already sees us as we will be. Otherwise, he couldn't deal with us. So he deals with us according to what he knows we will be because it is done to him. Remember what I've said. God is outside of time, so he sees us where we are now, where we were, and where we will be at the same moment. His omnipresent isn't just every place, it's every time. You know, and it, as mind-boggling as it is, God is with us right now. He is with us when we're in the, in the, in the millennial kingdom with Jesus Christ ruling. He's with us when the new heaven and new earth is already there with his, with his, from his placement. And he is with Adam and Eve right now. Because he is outside of time. It's something we can't comprehend because our minds can't comprehend it, but it is true that he is encompassing time. And if there's something beyond that, he's encompassing that. And if there's something beyond that, he encompasses that because he encompasses everything, which gives us where we need to be secure. You know, we've talked a lot, you know, various times, the, the coronavirus is just the newest disease coming through to make people afraid. God knew it was coming. <laughs> He knows what the results are going to be. He knows how many people are going to die because of it. He knows how many people are going to get sick because of it. He hasn't stopped it, so he's allowed it. Why? For the very reason that you mentioned in your little pre. Are we going to fear or are we going to trust God? That is what this is all about. Are we going to live in fear of this disease and, and things we don't know? Or are we going to trust in God and say, God, you're still in charge? All tests are versed for that reason. Will we trust him? Or are we going to turn away from him? You know, we read the verse earlier, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your path. What's he going to do? You say you believe that verse? Get ready for the trial that's going to say, do you want to trust in God or do you want to trust in your ways? Every time. God's going to say, oh, you think you believe that? Let's see if you believe it. Oh, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Do you believe it? Are you going to share that with others? You're going to have plenty of tests. Uh, my, my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Oh, when you believe that verse, you get all kinds of wonderful things come your way. Because God's going to say, do you trust this verse? Do you trust that I can make things good? And I can't say I'm perfect, but I'm getting much better. I usually look at it and say, okay, God, don't understand this, but I'm holding on to your promise. So whatever it is, whatever, and beware, and I've said this over and over, whatever God is teaching you in the word of God, get ready for the test to say, do you trust it? Whatever it might be. He's teaching you to be more patient, more loving, more forgiving, more kind, more trusting, more obedient in giving. Whatever it is that you're doing, expect the test in that area. If you're somebody who has not tithed and all of a sudden you decide, I'm going, to go, I'm going to start tithing, I can tell you within a month you're going to have some unexpected bills. And God's going to say, are you still trusting me? Are you still, going to, are you still going to follow me and, and listen to me? 
You decide you want to be more loving and kind to people, you're very quickly going to find somebody that is very hard to love come into your life. Very quickly. God, I, I thank you for teaching me about love. Oh, okay, let me, let me see if you've learned your lesson. Always. 48 years of walking with God, I've watched him do just that. Whatever he teaches me in the word is what I face and attest very soon thereafter. And the question really comes from God is, are you going to believe what you've been, been learning? Or do you really believe what you've been learning? Because we can say we believe anything. The real question is when we're in a test, do we hold on to that belief? It's real easy to say, God, I just love everybody. You know, now, but when I meet that person that's hard to love, that becomes the test of, am I going to show God's love to people? God, you're really teaching me to be forgiving. Somebody's going to do something that you're going to have to forgive. And it might be very hard. So we need to be ready for those tests. Be aware. And I'm just warning all of us. Warning all of us. Be ready. Because when this comes, you will be tested. God's going to say, do you really believe this? Is it something that you're going to hold on to? And the more you walk with him, the harder the test gets. When you're just starting out learning love, the, the test is not a, not a really hard-to-love hard person, just somebody who irritates you. <laughs> you start walking with God for a long time, and you've got love down fairly well, and God says, okay, let, let's, test, let's test your love. Because you're so far advanced, your test has to be more advanced. You know, somebody who's been walking with God for a long time cannot look down on somebody else when they fail for, on, on what we think is a simple test. Because for that person, it was a hard test. It was a hard test for that person. The kindergarten who has a test, math test, one plus one, that's a hard test for them. All right? If, we've been, if we're walking with God, just starting out, we're going to get a kindergarten test. The kindergarten test is, just, is really hard to a kindergartner. Not hard to a sixth grader, not hard to a high schooler. But what do we do to fix those? We give them harder tests. <laughs> All right? God does the same thing for us. He makes our test equivalent to what we know and what we've been studying and what he's been teaching us. And then he says, okay, I, you, you are on a PhD. You're going to get a PhD test. That's what Job had. Job had a PhD test. I'm going to take everything away from you, Job, or you're going to still follow me. And he came close to not following especially after his friends decided to keep telling him how a bad man he was. But just prepare. Just prepare, because I've said this so many times, when God moves, Satan does not just give up. Satan does not say, oh, well, I lost that battle, and disappear. He goes and gets some reinforcements and comes back with a vengeance. And we need to be able to understand it's not because we're bad that we're getting tempted or tested. It's because we're growing. And the harder our test is, isn't because we're getting worse in our walk with God, it's because we're getting better with our walk of God. And so he sends a harder test to us so that we have to depend on him even more. It's really a sign of growth. Now, ten, we tend to look at it like, wow, what am I doing wrong, God? Everything seems to be so hard and so, so bad. And we need to be careful that we don't get into that mindset because it's really a sign of growth. You know, when you learn to play a sport, you know, 
uh, let's say you're playing basketball and you're learning to dribble the ball. Very few people pick up the ball and start dribbling perfectly the first day. You know, I don't care how good they are. They didn't, they didn't start dribbling real well that first day. They didn't make shots the first day all the time. And then as they get better and better, they get more and more and more challenges. That guy who looked really good in peewee, peewee ball because nobody else knew how to play gets into high school and gets embarrassed because players are good. And then they shine in high school and they get to college and they don't shine anymore because those players are even better. And then they hit the pros <laughs> where they're playing the cream of the cream and all of a sudden they realize this is a challenge. This is a challenge. This is us as we grow for Christ. We may look good in that little, little early pool where we're comparing ourselves to our un unsaved friends. I really love. I know how to forgive. Uh, and then we start getting into the big leagues. <laughs> and God says, all right, let's see, let's see where you really are. All right, back to, back to our, <laughs> our lesson in Kings. <laughs> Verse 40. And Hiram made the lavers la and the shovels and the basins. So Hiram made an end to all the work that, that he made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowls on the chap chapters on the top of the two pillars, the two networks that covered the two bowls of the chapters were on the top of the pillars, and 140 pomegranates of the two networks on, and two rows of pomegranates on one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters on top of the pillars. So this is his gold stuff that he worked on. Remember we talked about the two pillar, great big pillars that stood outside. Uh, one was uh, Boaz and the other one was... And, all that beautiful work, and that's all of gold, and all the lattice work that he attached to that. So that he quickly tied this up. Then he made the ten bases and the ten lavers on the bases, and one sea, and twelve oxen under the sea, and pots and shovels and basins, and all the vessels which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass. So inside the te temple, everything was gold. Deity. Outside the temple, the walls are covered with gold, but everything else is made out of brass. What is brass? Does anybody remember what brass stands for? Judgment. So outside of the temple is God's judgment on the sacrifice. All right? So everything is brass. Everything is brass. Judgment. Once you enter into the holy place, everything was gold and deity. Now, we had in the temple, in the tabernacle, there was more beautiful pictures in this, which we're not covering all of that right now because we don't have time to cover the entire picture of this. But salvation was brought through the sacrifice as we entered into the temple, into the holy place and the holy of holies. Now, in, when Jesus died on the cross, the tabernacles, the, the te, uh, curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies was torn from top to bottom. No more separation between man and God. And now we still had the, only the priests were allowed into the holy, holy place, so they, now they saw something they weren't supposed to see. But remember that God calls us priests. We are saints, we are anointed, we are the priest. So we have access to the holy place, and because the curtain has been torn, we also have access to the holy of holies the throne room where God sits, where we can present our petition straight to the Father, 
We don't have to go through this sacrificial system and watch the, the animal be killed and the blood be taken in for us to God. We have access to God and the forgiveness of sin. And this is the beauty. Everything's brass on the outside, judgment of God and deity and holiness on the inside. This is the way it is for us. Jesus died for our sins. We are clothed in Christ's righteousness. We are able then in perfect garments to walk into the holy place where the altar of incense is, which is prayer, the showbread, which is food, and the light. All the pictures of Jesus. And beyond that, we go right into the throne room of heaven to the mercy seat where the Father sits and accepts us because Jesus is the propitiation for our sin. And propitiation means that Jesus took all the punishment for sin upon himself. All of God's anger for sin was placed on Jesus. And he took the punishment for sin completely. God dumped all of his anger at sin upon Jesus. You know, we don't really understand even that much. The scriptures tell us that it pleased the Father to do this to Jesus. Not because he was a sadistic, brutal individual saying, I just got to beat my son. But he says, my justice has been, been met. I poured it out on myself. I took my own punishment upon myself so that people could be forgiven. Not that he was just taking pleasure in beating, beating and, and punishing Jesus. But he says, the end result is that I get a people that are mine, that I will spend eternity with because they will be forgiven. This is the whole reason that all of that happened on the cross, so that we could be forgiven. That, and I wouldn't have to try to earn my way to heaven because I couldn't do it, because I'd earned death already. The wages of sin is death. So as soon as we made one sin in our life, even before we were cognizant of sinning, we sinned and we're, and we're dead. People will always go, well, that child is so innocent. Well, you know what? Every baby I know is the most selfish thing that's in this world. They're hungry, they let you know. They're wet, they let you know. They want attention, they let you know. And if you don't give it to them when they want it, they let you know. They are extremely selfish. We're born sinners. We're born guilty. There is no such thing as an innocent human being in God's eyes. Now, he will have justice on those, you know, mercy on those that have no cognizant way. They, if they die before they have a way to cognizantly recognize that they're a sinner, I believe that God will have mercy on them. I have no verse to back it up other than David saying that he couldn't go to his child because his child had died, he had to go to his, you know, he had to go to his child. That's the only verse in all the Bible that talks about children going to heaven because they're innocent. And don't make a doctrine on one verse. <laughs> so be very careful. We do know that all sin, and that we're born in sin. So we want to be very careful with that. So he builds all of these things, and then in verse 46 it says, in the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Succoth and Zarthan. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because they were exceedingly many. Neither was there a weight of brass found out. Everything that was made in brass 
He has no idea how much brass was used. That's a lot of brass. All right, and why? Number one, it was not brass was not all that valuable to him to, to get into because remember we we talked about this. Silver in Solomon's kingdom was like dust; it had no value. Brass was no value at all. And he says, "I'm not even counting how much brass we're putting into the temple." But we have twelve, uh, ten, ten big brass wagons to carry the water in. We have the water. We have the brass brass laver that held of water, which was a, was a swimming pool. We have the brass altar. We have the brass forks and spoons and everything for the altar and the, and the knives and all of that. Brass everywhere. And he says they didn't even bother counting it. That's a lot. And, he didn't, and it was just so insignificant. And it says in verse 48, And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, whereupon the showbread was, and the candlesticks of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, before the oracle, and the flowers, and the lamps, and the tongs of gold, and the bowls, and the snuffers, and the basins, and the spoons, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both of the doors of the inner house, and the most holy place, and for the doors of the house, to wit, the temple. So everything on the inside of the temple is gold. Yeah, this had to have been, you know, can you, how would you like to be the brass polisher in this temple? <laughs> inside, outside, Everything inside the temple was gold. Everything outside the temple is brass. And so they build this beautiful structure. And then in verse 51, so was ended all the work of King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought all in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels, and he put them among the treasures of the house of the Lord. So Solomon then goes, okay, I've, I have made all this stuff. Now let me go get my dad's gift to you. <laughs> yeah, dad's been dead for a while, but here, here's dad's gift. <laughs> yeah, and David had put away, I've heard estimates to the, to the tune of billions of dollars worth of supplies for the temple. David had taken a huge amount of, of his own assets and said, God, I want to build you a beautiful building that is worthy of God. Now, nothing we can build is worthy of God, but his goal was to come as close as he possibly could in human terms. And down through the ages, different church ages have done the same thing. Some of the great cathedrals we have in the, in the Europe were built during that time when, not that they were wasting money, there were times when they were just showing off, but there were other times when they're saying, we just want to build a beautiful building that honors God. And then we've said this, the church has gone back and forth over the years to build these great big buildings and show God how much we love him by, and then we get too much into that and people are getting too much into building a edifice for God and, and, and making myself look good and then people rebel against that and then we go down to where we're going to put nothing into our churches. We're going to, we're going to have rough rough uh, pews and no cushions and no, no comforts and, you know, threadbare doors, you know, walls, you know, we don't care about the heat that we're overusing. We're just going to be making it as, you know, all the money goes to the poor and no money goes to the church. And then we get down and people go, well, you know, this is a little ridiculous and we swing back the other direction again. All right. Right now they're in a place where they're saying, we're going to build this beautiful building for the worship of God. And it's supposed to inspire awe. 
when you walk in, and, and it even does, if you walk into or you see some of the really good pictures of these things, and you see these great edifices and these great cathedrals, I've been into some of them on the East Coast where there's some very beautiful cathedrals and stuff, and they just, they are awe-inspiring. And, you know, they can make you think about God if you're in the right attitude. Uh, you know, so they do have their place. Now, they can become too much. You know, people can take pleasure and look at what I've done because they become works, just as our own lives. You know, we can get so, we can start out with the right attitude toward our work for God, and if we're not careful, we can get wrapped up into, God, look at, look at what I'm doing for you. And all of a sudden, we switch from working for God to working for ourselves. And we've got to be on the guard for that. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on to your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. It's very easy to start getting into, I'm trusting in myself. Here, you know, God, you know, God, you know, if I wasn't doing this, nothing would be getting done. So, you, you know, you should, be, you should be so happy that I'm here working for you. And, you know, I haven't heard people go quite that far as they're patting themselves, but they come darn close. You know, and we have to be careful of that because you start getting into that attitude, God will show you how unimportant you are to his kingdom. Without him, we can do nothing. With him, we can do anything and everything. And we've got to be able to understand that with him, there is nothing in this world that can stop us. But if we start thinking it's us, we start thinking it's my strength doing this, God will say, okay, let me show you what your strength can accomplish as he pulls away and lets us fall flat on our face. And usually when we fall flat on our face and if we think we're that important, it's very embarrassing because we fall flat on our face in front of all the people that we think are looking up to us. And then it really humbles us because now I have to admit that I, that I have been a total jerk and an idiot. <laughs> Ask for forgiveness and hope that they're going to forgive and start back up with God again. But God will lift us right back up if we humble ourselves and confess. But he's saying, are you paying attention to me? Are you getting a big head and thinking you're all something? Or are you still trusting in me? You know, I love when God works. I love that we got a church that reaches out to thousands of people every month with the gospel message. But here we have Solomon finishing the temple. One of the great wonders of the ancient world. And he builds it for God's glory. And he says, God, it's for you. And we're going to see God accept this gift in the next couple chapters because God is going to be honoring that decision. Did God ask for a temple? No. Did God even want a temple? I'm not sure that he wanted the temple because we've talked about that the tabernacle had some beautiful pictures in it. Now, they've left some pictures in the, in the tabernacle, but this isn't something that God said to do. This is David's plan that Solomon is building. You know, the tabernacle was God's plan. And the pictures and the beauty of that, of that plan are stupendous. And God is now going to say, okay, you've built me a house. You built me a house. Here, here, here is my honor on it. All right, Lord, we just thank you for this day. We ask you to be with us, guide us, keep us. 
Lord, give us the opportunity to share you with others as we go about our business this week. Lord, keep us resting in you no matter what happens. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.